Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode in our 101 lecture series, we do West Africa, gold, glory, globalization. Make way. Here he comes. Ring the bells. Bang the drums. Ah, you're going to love this guy. Do, 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 do. The West African empires are based on the Niger River and the Sahel. The Sahel, the Sahel is this green steppe, for lack of a better word, green belt that goes across northern Africa, from the west coast, from the Atlantic coast, to the Red Sea. It's a narrow band. Below it is equatorial Africa. Jungles, rainforests, uh, deep forests. And so the Sahel is good growing land. Now, if you're watching the video, you'll see a little typical photo of it. You can see there's rolling hills, there's green, there's nothing in there that's stopping the movement of people and or animals. The bigger thing is to see the empire's map. You see a lot of these empires in history in this area. The Niger River plus the Sahel. It makes sense. The Sahel allows for settled civilization. It allows for cities. The Niger River can water it all in West Africa. It does not go to East Africa. The Niger River also does not go to Central Africa. And so... There's no connections between this part of Africa and Eastern Central Africa unless you travel across the Sahel. There's no, there's no waterway that will get you there. But you can cross with horses on the Sahel and go east to west. You'll also notice um, the kingdoms of East Africa and where they are located and see how they're located on the Nile. So just as West Africa is located on the Niger River and the Sahel, East Africa is on the Nile, and you have these concentrations. And there are other, other states here and there, but the main concentration are in these two areas. This is why we talk about them. So we get right into African empires, and we start with Ghana, Wagadu, from 800 to 1250 A.D., it is a trade empire connecting North Africa and the Berber kingdoms and Islamic Spain to Africa. It crosses the Sahara and brings West African goods, especially gold, in exchange for salt. Now, you may go, oh my God, salt, why would you give gold for salt? Well, because you need salt for preservation of food, for drying of food, you need it for nutrition, you need it to live. Salt is very, we, the problem is in, in modern industrial sets, uh, in the modern industrial world, we have way too much salt in our diet. Previous people had the opposite problem. And in West Africa, you had plenty of gold. You had plenty of gold. The other thing was leather goods. Giant cows, bulls, you turn into leather, and you would ship that north to the North African Islamic Berber kingdoms and to Islamic Spain. 
And the reason why is Islamic Spain was always at war with Christian Spain, uh, Christian Spain and Christian Europe, and so had no access to those cows. You don't have access to European cows, European heifers. You don't have access to their leather in any large number. There's always a black market. There's always selling goods, um, but no official trade. And so Islamic Spain, say for its leather armor, needed to use West African leather. So West Africa, just like East Africa, is going to be connected to the Islamic world through trade across the Sahara. Now, we don't have any real sources from Ghana itself, from Wagadu itself. We have Arabic sources. We have what the Arabs and Arabic speaker Berbers wrote about Ghana. What we know is they had matrilineal kings. Kings followed the, the female line of succession. They had a centralized state, but a decentralized vassal state. So you had a strong core, what we call a metropole, and then the places that Ghana conquered or absorbed into its larger empire were able to run themselves. In some ways, this is very much like Persia. The Persians let, remember, Babylon run itself. Like the Babylon king stayed in Babylon. The Lydian king stayed king of Lydia. He just made sure the taxes went to Persia. So you had a centralized state. You had a king. You had a government. You had an army. You had taxation. You had law. But as you got farther away from Persia itself, you had not independence, but decentralization. Vassal states were able to do their own thing. In some ways, this is like the Republican form of the United States, right? You have a centralized government in Washington, D.C., but individual states control a lot of how they run themselves. Ghana means war chiefs. So war was important, obviously. I mean, if you're calling your country, if your country gets named, I shouldn't say you calling your country because we only have Arabic sources. So the Arabs are calling Ghana, Ghana, and Ghana means war chief. That tells you about who they think is important in Ghana. And the sources tell us it has a massive army, 200,000 infantry, 40,000 archers. Notice these are all guys on foot. Also notice this is not historical. These numbers make no sense in history. right? You couldn't feed that many people in and military at one time. So this might be all of the men of Ghana if you armed all of them. It's also very possibly just an exaggeration. But the idea is Ghana is powerful. That isn't an exaggeration. Ghana is powerful. It is a powerful West African state. So it's saying it has lots of people. It has lots of archers. It's a powerful state. So you make up big numbers to kind of give the idea of power. Because if you say it has 30,000 troops, other countries have that. And you go, oh, that sounds normal. Well, you're trying to, like, he's huge. He's 10 feet tall. Well, actually, he's... It's Goliath, right? And David versus Goliath. People are like, oh, Goliath. I've had students who were like, Goliath was 12 feet tall. No, no. Goliath was like 6'6", six, 6'8", six, six, tops. Because remember, David is 5'2". So if you're 6'6", six, six, like you're huge. 
Have you ever met a basketball player? Like even a fairly small basketball player, 6'6", six, six, like Michael Jordan is, or 6'8", you know, and you're you? You get the idea. So we're not historical. We, we don't have Ghana sources. We have what people are writing about it. And what they want to say is they're good at war, Ghana war chiefs. They got a powerful army, lots of people in it. It is a cosmopolitan trading state. It's connecting Africa to the Islamic world. And what it does, the big innovation of Ghana, of Wagadu, is to bring in Islam, to convert from a paganism, a polytheism, to a monotheism. This is a slower process, but the government does it. And why? Because Islam in 800, 900, 1,000 is the most sophisticated culture on earth. Way better than whatever is going on in Europe. Islamic Spain, Cordoba, is a city of maybe a million people. It has lit streets. It has sewage systems underneath those streets. It has sidewalks separating cart traffic from pedestrian traffic. Meanwhile, Paris and London are disgusting. Full of cholera. They're not really worth mentioning as capital cities. Um, in, in, a, in a world that has Cordoba, in a world that has Carthage, in a world that has uh, Alexandria and Constantinople. I mean, Constantinople's Christian at this point, but it's still under the Byzantines, but you know. So the Ghana kings see this, see Islam as this sophisticated um, governing system, not just belief system, but governing system, and brings in Islamic scholars to help improve the government, the law, the taxes. And this is a huge success. There are 12 mosques alone in the capital city. And by 1150, Ghana and most of West Africa on the Sahel have converted to Islam. And Islam is going to be the most important unifying cultural connection in West Africa till the Europeans show up, basically. So what happens to Ghana? Why does it decline? Um, we don't know. Honestly, we just don't know. The best guess is a series of weak kings. Uh, we know that the vassal states begin to break off. So it's kind of like India or it's kind of like more like India than China, where it breaks apart into pieces. The farther away places break away first and you know more. Um, so the vassal states get independence. We know Al Al Almohad Spain intervenes. They march across the Sahara with an army to kind of whack Ghana. Why? Why would they whack co-religionists? Well, because money is more important. Almohad Spain is at war with, with what's left of Christian Spain up in the north. Um, it's losing, it's slowly losing. It's at war with Christian Europe. And it's got a problem. And that problem is it needs money. It needs gold. Okay? Where's its gold coming from? It's coming from West Africa. This is where you have the gold supply. It needs gold. Why? To hire 
troops, to build ships, to uh, make weapons, to 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 pay farmers for food for the armies, for all of that stuff, to to build defensive networks, castles, all that kind of stuff. So you need gold, physical gold. You need gold in your hand. What's the problem? Well, Ghana became so powerful, it dominated the major gold mines. It dominated West African gold. So it meant it jacked up the price. Of course it has. It would do that. It has a monopoly. They're core religionists, but they ain't dumb. And so as Ghana absorbed these other states that could trade gold with Spain, with Islamic Spain, they jacked up the price because it's it's like Comcast for those of you who are in the Philadelphia area. Like, where else are you going to go? So when Comcast says, all right, you're going to pay us 200 bucks a year, you say, oh, I hate that. I'm going to um, 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 go to Verizon. And Verizon's like, you're going to pay us $198. Because where else are you going to go? And like, I, I, okay, because they have a monopoly. So what Almohad Spain does is come down, whack, just, you know, give a, give a sharp uh, ally with a couple of vassal states that are trying to get independence from Ghana, who are like, come help us. They come down, they send an army down across the Sahara, show up, get some allies, beat up the Ghanese army, Right allow these vassal states to break away, and then they turn around to the vassal states and say, okay, instead of uh, a thousand tons or a hundred tons of salt per per pound of gold, I, I don't know, but, you know, you're going to make it 10 tons. You know, you're, you're going to lower the price by, uh, you know, 90%. And a lot of these vassal states say, okay, because they're getting money. They're getting salt. They're getting something they could use. And they're trading something they have a lot of for stuff they need. And is now more competition. We're going to see this happen again. That the problem for West Africa in the period before the Europeans show up is actually being too successful. Well, the biggest and most important successor state is a successor state called Mali, M-A-L-I. There's a modern country called Mali today uh, that part of this empire was in. This is really going to dominate the Sahel and the Niger River. Uh, it's more rooted because it's got more, it's more on the river. It's less of a trade state. It's more of an agricultural state than Ghana was. And so it's more rooted. We're going to have four hundred cities, including the two biggest of West Africa, Timbuktu and Gao. These are capital cities. These are major cultural centers, major governmental centers. Now notice what's happening to the army. It's smaller. It's 90,000 infantry. Now notice we're still in infantry, men on foot. That tells you the Sahel is pretty easy at this point to get across. You don't need camels. You don't need horses. You don't need uh, chariots. Men on foot can travel across this empire. They are self-armed with a javelin and a bow. 
So what we see is a citizen militia, like the Greek polis. The Greek hoplite armed themselves. They, they paid their own money to arm themselves, which means these are guys with some rights. They're paying themselves. They're paying for their own weapons, which means they're going to want to have a say. They're not going to have a full democracy because that just doesn't happen anywhere other than in Athens, really. But we're seeing a citizen militia. We're going to see men with rights, men with a say in the government, kings having to take their people seriously. Mali controlled three massive gold mines and dominated trade with Spain. It absorbed the Ghanese, the Wagadu trade system. And it's a bigger empire. It's more powerful. And Spain continues to need gold. It's at war with Spanish Christians, and so it needs gold. But what Mali does is instead of keeping things essentially decentralized, and it doesn't have to import Islam, it already has Islam, what they do is go to the next step and create the Timbuktu Islamic Center. It is essentially Africa, an African university. Now, there is a university in North Africa earlier than this. So if you want that to be, in, it's outside of Tunis, Carthage. Uh, if you want that to be, and it's pretty much the first university in the world. If you want that to be the first African university, I won't argue with you. But this is kind of the first black African, sub-Saharan African university. Whereas... The North African one is Berbers, it's Arabs. Um, there are black Africans there, of course, as part of the Sahara trade and coming across. Um, but Timbuktu is, is an African, sub-Saharan African kingdom. It is a sub-Saharan African city. It is an Islamic center. It is a great library. It is an African university, bringing scholars from all kinds of disciplines into one place. It has 700,000 manuscripts. One of the largest collections of um, knowledge in the world, and perhaps outside of Alexandria, the largest collection of Islamic knowledge in the world. And I could be wrong about Alexandria. I don't know about Mecca or Medina at in this time period, the 1300s, how good their storage capacity was for for um, Islamic knowledge. Cairo, there's a university center that will be de de developing in Cairo um, so that by 1500s, Cairo is one of the, the great Islamic centers and had been. But Timbuktu is at least on that level. 700,000 manuscripts. It is a cultural center for Islamic West Africa. We have a decentralized government. Mali lets people run themselves and they tax the trade. They have make enough money off the gold mines and the gold trade that for the most part, they tell people, don't revolt, pay your taxes, we're cool. So we see, just like with Ghana, this kind of decentralized vassal state arrangement, which is good. When things are good, that's a nice, it's a cheap way to run the system. It means you get a lot of loyalty because you're giving people independence. So they tax the trade in exchange for local independence. 
which is a traditional way for a government to collect money. That's not, you know, you you charge 10% on the trade. It's it's basically a sales tax. You charge 10%, but no one cares because what does the merchant do? They charge 10% extra. And as long as you don't live in the United States, you never see it because they don't tell you what it is. They just tell you, this is the price. But in the United States, we say, oh, no, no, no. The government has to get 8%. So we can't give it to you for the price I wish we could. We have to give it to you for this for that price plus 8%. Here, it's on your receipt. Look at what the government's taking. I have been in many a European country, and I don't. I know the tax is 25%. You never see it. It's in the price. So that brings us to Mansa Musa, who is going to be the great king for 30 years of Mali. He provides stability. He is the height. He is the Khufu of Mali. He's the Ashoka the Great. It is Mansa Musa the Great. He is the height of Mali's kingdom, and you can make the argument the height of West African kingdoms in general. He goes on a Hajj to Mecca. This Hajj is so famous in its own day that it gave legitimacy to Timbuktu, it gave legitimacy to West Africa as a modern Islamic state, it gave, it basically said Mansa Musa was the richest man who ever lived, who had more money than anybody since Croesus. And Croesus is kind of like Midas, for those of you who don't know who Croesus, Croesus invented coinage. The Lydians, he's the king of Lydia who invented coinage. And so the Greeks are like, oh my God, you have so much money because when you invent money, when you invent coins, you make profit off the selling of those coins. And so Croesus slash Midas, the Midas touch, you know, everything turns to gold became like, oh my God. Well, between Croesus and Mansamusa, that's what we're talking about. That kind of wealth. Um, if you are in my physical class, my face-to-face class, the only way I could really describe this Hajj is to show, and we will show, Aladdin's parade in the movie Aladdin, where he comes in on the elephant with the peacocks, with the with the everything. Except you have to realize it's not a white dude with a tan on top of a elephant with a fez. It's a, and this is kind of an Indian elephant, if I'm not mistaken, but it's a black man riding an elephant with a train, throwing gold coins to people to, the, to, to make himself famous, to get the peoples of small towns. Um, there is at least one historical economic study that actually watches inflation and can chart the movement of Mansa Musa on his Hajj through Africa to North Africa, through Egypt, to the Middle East, to Arabia, through the inflation of prices. Because they had so much money, they just spent what they wanted. They just bought what they wanted by outspending people. And so, if you want an idea, go watch Aladdin's Parade. But remember, it's all black people in the parade. 
It is a celebration. It is an explosion of black African Islamic culture and demographics marching its way through the African Islamic and Arabic world and was celebrated in its own day as just stunningly famous. Mansa Musa is basically the most famous uh, black African since the Queen of Sheba. So what does the Hajj prove? That West Africa is rich. It is modern and is an important part of the Islamic world. And what does Mansa Musa do? Hire people. Brings them that back. He's on Hajj and it's a job opportunity for people. He's hiring the best and the brightest to bring them back to West Africa to make Mali even better, to make it more advanced, to make it up to date. Mali architecture, learning, art. Timbuktu becomes perhaps the most advanced Islamic city in the world after the destruction of Baghdad in 1258. There is not a level of sucking in of talent, of just a vacuum cleaner of, of talent into one place. I don't even know what will replace it. Might be Paris. After the revolution? Might be New York in the 20s? Like, I don't know. Like, I just don't know. The Mongols are earlier than this. And actually, about the same time. No, they're earlier. But Yuan China is going on about, about this period. And they're sucking in a lot of talent from the Central Asian world. But, you know, it might be imperialism where you go to Ox Oxbridge, you go to Oxford or Cambridge and talent from throughout the world is being brought into Oxford and Cambridge. I don't know. I, I got to tell you, I really don't know. So it's a stunningly successful, hello, I'm here. West Africa is here. We are rich. We are modern. We are educated. We are cultured. And we are open for business. So how does Mali collapse? Because nobody who came after Mansa Musa was up to the job. Which makes sense. How do you follow someone that awesome? Even if you do a Hajj yourself, it can't be as awesome as his Hajj. So you just look, you look like you're a bandwagon jumper or a poser. You know, you also are fairly rich. And it makes it easier for guys to be lazy. Oh, you know... My life's not getting any worse, so uh, I'll deal with it tomorrow, right? So you get a series of weak kings. Weak kings, of course, bring about civil wars because other people say, I can do a better job. And while that's going on, the vassal states who were running themselves go, well, I'll just run myself. Why should I send my taxes to you, a weak king, come down here and make me? And the guy goes, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. That's, that's going to be hard. Well, that's how the empire breaks up. 
in some ways, this is where Rome looks like after Constantine. Parts of the empire start going to Rome. Come and make us. So Mali begins to break up. India breaks up in, in exactly the same way, time and again. The farther away you are from the capital, the easier it is to do your own thing. Look at Hawaii. Look at look at Alaska. They're so far away. Do you? Do you I've been to Hawaii. You know, I've li- not lived there. I've been there for an extended period of time to do some some ed- academic work. And I'll tell you, you wake up and the world is over. You wake up, Chris Hayes is on MSNBC saying goodnight. And you're like, oh, okay. The day has passed. You have an entire day to do whatever you want. The news has been made. All the crazy stuff is over. They're now talking about it at night. Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow are like, hey, well, you know, it's over. Good night. See you later. And the and the angels are on TV. Like they're playing the late game. Right? You get the angels or the Seahawks playing. And you're like, all right. And that's like in the morning. They're like, okay. So Hawaii and Alaska are basically independent countries. They're part of the United States, but for all intents and purposes, they're doing their own thing. And everyone shrugs. You know? We talk about, like, for example, like socialism. Like, people go, oh, socialism, socialism. And Republicans say socialism in America, giving money. Alaska literally has socialism. They take the money from the oil, they divide up the profit, and they give everyone a subsidy who lives in Alaska. A Republican state full of Republican government gives people money for just being Alaskans. And good for them. It helps the people. But you could only do that. You couldn't do that in Virginia. You have to do it in Alaska because everyone looks at Alaska and goes, eh, it's Alaska. And you shrug. It's too far away. So Molly breaks up because the farther away they are from Timbuktu, from Gale, the harder it is to hold it together. And what happens to Mali is it breaks up into these pieces and then a new kingdom by about 1500 called Songhai comes in and takes most of the west and the north. In 1545, it takes the capital. And so Songhai, this last empire, which is going to, again, be based on the Sahel. You can see it on the map. It's this line across. It's the Sahel, Niger, but also it, it has these trade routes across the Sahara. It's based in Gao in the 1430s. It's going to win its independence from Mali, and then it's going to start eating Mali. It's going to absorb Timbuktu, and it's based on a conquering founder, a warrior king named Sony Ali. Now you see, he's Arabic. You know, that's Ali. He's Islamic. So when we went, when we started with Wagadu, we were bringing in Islam. By the first king of Songhai, we have Islamic names. Sony Ali. So he's this great conquering founder, and his son is Sony Baru. And his poor son is like the sons of Mansa Musa. They're just not up to the job. 
So Sonia Lee dies, and Sonia Baru goes, I'm the new king! And people go, no. And especially this guy, Askia, who is one of Ali's great generals. And what does he do? He just usurps the thing. He looks at the kid and goes, no, I'm not going to listen to you. And he turns to his army and goes, who are you going to listen to? Me or the kid? And the army says, you. And that's the end of it. So he's a usurper. He pushes the kid aside. He runs the empire. And then he does a Hajj himself. Why? Because he's emulating Mansa Musa. He's also saying, hey, I'm the new king of Songhai slash Mali. Talk to me. Right? Right now, as I record this, President Biden is on his first trip to Europe. And he's going to meet with um, the EU. He's going to meet with Britain, who's not in the EU anymore. He's going to meet with um, NATO in Brussels. And he's going to go to Geneva and meet with Putin and the president as the president of Russia. So he's meeting with uh, Central and Eastern Europe. He's meeting with Western Europe. And then he's meeting with Russia. Right? Why? Why do this? Why not just pick up the phone? Why take a week and travel around Europe across an ocean? Because he's a new president and he's announcing himself. He's going to go and he's going to say, Hey, I'm America. I'm the new president. Obama did it. Donald Trump did it. New presidents do this. It's to announce yourself. Askia is like doing the same thing. Hey, I'm here. If you want to deal with Molly, you're dealing with me. Because he's also got the problem that he overthrew. You know, when he shows up and he goes, hey, I'm in charge of Mali, they're going to go, well, what about Sonia Lee? Well, he's dead. What about Sonia Lee's son? Oh, well, uh, you know, um, he took a vacation. He's not coming back. I'm in charge now. And people go, okay. So Songhai is going to continue to use Islam as their court religion and their education. They have a professional army. Instead of having these citizen soldiers, they're going to have a professional army. And you can see, we, are, we have entered history now. By 1500, our sources are historical. It has 30,000 uh, infantry, 10,000 cavalry. Notice we've added cavalry. This is how much bigger Songhai is. And we've added a navy on the Niger. It is a fast-moving army that controls cities. This is a more centralized government with a better army than Mali was. Because Mali could let vassal states do their own thing. And, it, and if it needed to defend itself, it could bring its citizens together. Songhai has a professional army, which means they're always soldiers. It's fast-moving cavalry. It's fast-moving on its navy. It's expensive and sophisticated, cavalry and navy. Right? And it's a size that makes historical sense. 40,000 people plus another ten to 15,000 people in the navy. Boom. 50,000 people, you, you know that's what a good-sized, powerful kingdom would have because that's historically how big these armies are. So how does Songhai collapse? Well, this, the problem is Askia's sons revolt against their dad and then against each other. So their dad was a usurper, so the sons are usurpers. Get out of my way, old man. Kind of like out of The Simpsons. Oh, son. You finally found me. Get out of my way, old man. 
You know, they're like, you usurped against Sony Baru. We can usurp against you. And Asuka's like, no, I'm your dad. And like, well, we want to be in charge. And then they they hated each other. So they fought against each other. Well, here's the problem is this is a mess, right? And there's Morocco. Now, Islamic Spain has been conquered by the Christians. That ended in 1492. So, all right. So, in while the Song Songhai Empire is going on, we're talking Islamic Spain is losing. And remember, Islamic Spain needs money from the gold from West Africa, right? So now this is a mess. So now having Islamic Spain collapse, that means Morocco, the king of Morocco, is now on the front line of fighting Spanish conquistadors who are now fueled by gold that's coming from the Aztecs and the Incas. So suddenly Spain has more money than it knows what to do with. Morocco has a problem, and that problem is it now has to fight or it has to get ready to fight a super powerful Spain and its main gold supply is a mess because all the sons Askia is revolting against his lord. The sons are revolting against Askia. They then fighting each other. Like, dude, that's bad for business. And so what Morocco does is it takes its gunpowder troops. It has a more advanced army than Songhai does. It's a slower army, but it's more advanced. And they take their cannon, they take their gunpowder, and they march down across the Sahara and break it up. To stabilize the gold trade in 1591, they whack Songhai so that they could create allies that could create a stable gold trade with for them, a stable Saharan trade. Songhai is not working. We're going to put somebody else and we're going to make a bunch of them, just like with Ghana. You're going to have a bunch that compete against these others. So that keeps the trade, that keeps the um, costs low, but also keeps the supply up. They're going to compete against each other. And that will stabilize Morocco's gold situation so we can turn around and fight Spain. So what are the effects of all of this, of all these kingdoms? First is Islamic Islam spreads in Eastern and Western Africa, and Islam meant modernity. When Islam was the leading culture, when Islam was the leading civilization in the world, Africa was part of it. As Islam begins to decline in the 13 and 1400s, as Arabic Islam begins to decline in the 13, 14, 1500s, the Mongol invasions, the Reconquista in Spain, the Turks, as that's happening... African kingdoms begin to suffer as well. They're very much tied to the strength of the empires they're trading with. So African kingdoms have wealth and trade and education and urbanization. We have Gao, we have Timbuktu, we have Mero. We have massive cities on any scale. We have Arabic and European slavery affects the coast, but not the kingdoms. 
But African kingdoms had slavery, and they would enslave interior peoples. So we see this especially in East Africa. West Africa had slaves too. Why? Africa is huge, and there wasn't a lot of people. So labor was more important than land. You could own a million acres. How do you farm it? How do you make it work for you? You need slaves. And so warfare was about capturing slaves. Cities, slaves, the trade. So, but those slaves stayed inside Africa. And in a generation or two, they became citizens. They got reabsorbed into the civilization. Even Islamic slavery worked the same way. You might have the slave, the African slave in the Islamic world for a generation, but you also had to teach them how to be Muslims, especially you had to teach their children how to be Muslims. And remember, rule one, Muslims can't own other Muslims as slaves. Rule two, excuse me. Muslims can't own other Muslims as slaves. And so you get a way of having manumission built into the system. Christianity was supposed to have this. Roman manumission worked the same way. You became a Roman. When you were a slave, you weren't a Roman. Then you were freed, and you kind of became a, you became a, a level of Roman called freemen. Um, and then your children could become full-on Romans. So we see this system going on. But what's important to know is where you had a strong centralized African kingdom, you do not have their people being taken as slaves by either the Arabs or the Europeans. Songhai, Mali, Ghana, their people are not being taken. Kush, Meiro, Nubia, their people are not being taken into slaves. Their peoples are citizens of an empire that is strong enough to protect them. African kingdoms grew up protected and connected with European and Middle Eastern world. They had a connected economy, they had a connected religion, and they had connected cultures. They may be at the end of these cultural and economic and trade connections, but they were part of those worlds. I know, I'm using a bunch of Aladdin references, right? That's not an Aladdin reference. That's a Little Mermaid reference. So Disney references all around. But they're part of the world. It wasn't weird. They weren't cut off. They weren't uncivilized. They were, in fact, very civilized. That will, of course, change when Europeans start to conquer first the New World and then start looking for labor and they will turn to Africa. And what they will do is essentially impoverish a continent. They will plunder a continent of its people, of its resources, in order to make themselves wealthy. It is not a stretch to say the modern world order, the modern European wealth, is built on the plunder and destruction of essentially two con- three continents, North America, South America, in Africa. So that's where we will leave. We'll pick up in Africa in our 102 class. Uh, we have strong kingdoms. We have great kings. We have huge university libraries. 
And that's where we will leave it. So we have Zanzibar markets. So be careful. Be safe. Take care. See you soon. Bye.